Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Bow Hunter Chronicles podcast brought to you by Huntworth. Huntworth clothing for all types of weather, for all types of terrain, for all types of budgets. Clothing that works. Check them out at huntworthgear.com. So this is going to be the last podcast before Michigan's opener, before the end of the quarter. So if you want to get in on any of these giveaways, go to patreon.com forward slash Chronicles podcast. Sign-ups, like $0.17 cents a day, $0.33 cents a day. Uh, Huntworth is giving away their Elkins vest, uh, a set of their new Ames gloves, and some of their Casper Heat Boost base layers. Kanadi Arrows, Zingers, uh, Spartan Forge. Spartan Forge, you can go to uh, Spartan Forge, spartanforge.ai uh, and save 25% off with code BOWHUNTER. It's already cheap. It's got incredible mapping. They've got their new Blue Force tracker. Actually going to be testing that out um, this week uh, up where we don't have service uh, to see how well that's going to work for us. And going to have Bill on the show, I think, in two weeks or so um, to talk about all the new features, the new LiDAR. We actually talk about the LiDAR on this podcast here. Um, But we give away a month, not a month, a year subscription to that uh, that gives you also the AI. Um, so I've been looking at that as we're coming into the season, uh, as we're coming into our Patreon hunt, looking at that and saying, okay, what, where are these deer going to be? Uh, we got cameras out so we can kind of have an idea of like where we want to be, what the deer are doing, why they're doing it. All that's in that Spartan Forge app. But uh, Latitude giving away uh, probably a set of their sticks. Again, um, you can use code BHC for 15% off everything at their website. Uh, Big Shot Targets to give away one of their targets. Code BCP will get you 10% off of everything over there. Uh, Lucky Buck gives away some of their 
mineral or uh, some seed if you can't use mineral like we can't here downstate in Michigan. Um, I think that's it. Maybe I'm forgetting somebody, maybe not. Um, but all sorts of giveaways, all sorts of companies that support this show uh, and allow us to give back. And that's that's what we do. Uh, the Marco Polo Group is going strong, building a great community in there and uh, gearing up for this uh, Patreon hunt that's going to be enormous. So um, really looking forward to that. Lots of good deer. Uh, but this podcast with Jacob Slenner, uh, met him at the Mobile Hunting Expo in Kalamazoo. Uh, listened to a couple of podcasts. Uh, he's an engineer, so he breaks things down. Um, and even we talk about it on the podcast, maybe too much. Um, but with map scouting, um, organizing your pins, and kind of how to break down the woods as you go through it. And then as you look back, um, I think this is going to help everybody. Uh, great podcast. I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. Um, like I say, if you get a chance, go over to patreon.com. Uh, shout out to our latest Patreon, Eric Schaub out of Bay City. Um, thank you so much for supporting the show. Uh, we'll get your swag pack out here uh, very shortly. And a couple people have reached out and said, hey, is there still room at the Patreon hunt, et cetera, et cetera. Um, get a hold of me. Uh, we're going to try to accommodate everybody. Um, it's going to be a ball. It was great last year. Weather's looking good. Um, so get at me as soon as possible. And as we're going into this season, uh, good luck to everyone. Oh, and a big shout out to, uh, Brad Collins, BDS outdoors, been on the podcast, um, done some video stuff with us. He's on my bow hunting league team. Uh, just killed a buck the other day and he is setting out to do, uh, 10, 150 grain single bevel heads, uh, 10 different deer this season. Um, and luckily he's on my bow hunting league team. So, uh, we are on the board team bow hunter chronicles. So, uh, yeah, that being said, thank you for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Good luck this season. Enjoy. The All right, everybody. Adam back with another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. And uh, today we're talking with uh, one of the, I don't know if we should call him like one of the up and comers from the uh, the hunting beast uh, side of things. Uh, Jacob Sklenner, maybe you've heard of him on uh, the Latitude in Session podcast or uh, like Wisconsin Outdoorsman. Uh, maybe you've seen his videos on the hunting beast there with Dan and uh I actually got to talk to Jacob in person there at the Mobile Hunters Expo. And uh, Jacob, I want to know how that initial experience coming to Michigan um, and your accommodations were here uh, in this gray state of Michigan. Um, Well, I got to say I loved it. Uh, I loved it because of the people around me. Um, I feel like you're baiting me a little bit with this question here. (laughs) Uh, We stayed in Kalamazoo. So we'll, we'll throw a little asterisk on there because I've been to Michigan and, and most of the times I'm in Michigan in the UP and I absolutely love the UP, uh, but we were in Kalamazoo and, um, we like to pinch our pennies a little bit sometimes at the hunting beast. And, uh, we were in a hotel that had some, some stains of questionable color and size. We'll say, um, on some bedding, we had a, a few interesting characters roaming around parking lots. And um, that was kind of our initial experience in Kalamazoo. So that was, we'll call it interesting. Um, But honestly, I love the area. Um, I met a lot of people from Michigan there. Um, Like I said, I have prior experience in Michigan. And I really do love the place. And honestly, I drove in there at the right time because I was seeing a lot of nice deer out in the soybean fields at that time of year, man. And it actually kind of got me thinking about throwing a hunt that way. 
Yeah, Michigan, uh, I don't know. I, I think we're maybe like changing some some minds. Maybe we're opening some eyes. Maybe, you know, they say that hunter numbers are declining and maybe those are the the I just want to shoot my buck guys. Um and you have that in Wisconsin too, but Oh, for sure. But um but yeah, I don't know. I think you know, there's more and more deer the more and I think we'll talk about this later in the podcast, but I think the more work you put in, the the better the deer become. Um, I think, and I think maybe that's where, where Michigan has gotten a bad rap, uh, in the past. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say, um, I would say in the short term, your return on investment, um, with your time in the woods is linear, both in like, I, sorry, I'm an engineer. So linear means it's an equal amount increasing. So the more work you put in, you get equal result gain. And I would say it turns to exponential. So your returns are getting much and much greater over time. Uh, the more consistently you do that because you start to rack up those experiences and um you know it, it can be really really hard passing on deer and especially on public land like it's really hard to pass on deer and and start to you know reinvent in your mind what kind of um culture you hunt with you know what, what you want to take but i feel like the transition happened easier for me when i started looking for the experience rather than the animal and, um, you know, sometimes it meant shooting a smaller buck and sometimes it meant that I felt I hadn't experienced enough, hadn't learned enough and, or gained enough out of that season, you know, to hold up for something bigger in some of those cases. But, um, man, is it an addicting feeling when you start to, to set a tight goal and in a hard place in a hard state and you achieve it. And, um, you know, that's a kind of happiness that I wish anyone, no matter what they're kind of killing. So, uh, kind of on that note, like what is your hunting background and uh, how did you end up, you know, working with the uh, hunting beast and all of those guys? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I mean, I uh, typical Wisconsin kind of growing up scenario. My dad was always a part of a deer camp, and I was quickly thrown into that as well. Um, I grew up gun hunting actually in uh, Florence, Wisconsin. So we would drive through Iron Mountain. If some of your listeners are more familiar with that, we drive through Iron Mountain and. Uh, not very far from there, we'd hunt Florence and the Nicolet Chiquamagon National Forest, which huge, huge area. So I'm not, uh, and there's not giants there. So I'm not really worried about getting it away. But um, yeah, it was a total deer camp culture. And I just fell in love with the culture to start. And um, once I went off to um, to college, I became really intense about it. I'd started doing um, solo bow hunts in college, or sorry, in high school. And um, I got into bow hunting a lot more. And then in college, um, I just completely dove into it. I had actually discovered in my last two years of high school, um, Dan Infault's original Blood Brothers DVDs, Collecting Dust in the Basement, and um, started watching those. And man, um, I have an engineering mind. I'm a mechanical engineering degree. And um, man, did that get the gears turning to to figure out how to pattern deer and, and kind of solve them like an equation. That was just, man, like that was the coolest thing to me. And um I wrestled in college as well. And that, um, is where my work ethic comes from and, and my willingness to go to any kind of depth and any reach to achieve my goals it comes from that. And, uh, combining that with, with wrestling, um, was just kind of a recipe for disaster as far as my passions go. <laughs> like I, uh, I was completely head over heels for it. Uh, a lot of other things in my life started getting less attention because of how much I love hunting. And, um, Seeing how Dana Infault was getting it done on public land, uh, 
I started messaging him and some other guys to the hunting beast forum. And I learned a lot through that. And I became familiar with Dan and Dan became familiar with me over time. And uh, my goal was really to put my first big buck down on public land and and going to school in UW Platteville, uh, Southwestern Wisconsin. There's a lot of big bucks in that area. Um, and I had a lot of people that I knew in that area and many that were actually offering me permission to hunt on their land because they knew me through wrestling or back home and they own property out there. And I would literally turn down these pieces where people were, you know, shooting giants because I really wanted to get it done in public. And um, eventually I had a, a year where a lot of adversity happened to me. Um, I had broken my collarbone uh, at the beginning of the wrestling season. One of my friends actually slammed me and, <laughs> and broke my collarbone right at the beginning. Um, I had basically totaled my truck. I had like a three cylinder misfire. I had my bow get stolen. Um, I had all these things kind of affect me where I was in a tough spot with pretty much no money, no bow. Um, and I had this goal of killing a big buck on public land. And um, through the kindness of some really, really nice people in the local area, I got lent to bow by a local archery shop, a few arrows, set it in. And I just was like, man, I got to keep pushing. Like, I got to make this happen. And um, sure enough, that year, um, called my shot, explained on video because um, we were just doing it for the memories. We recorded my hunts and uh, I explained in a video exactly how I was going to kill this deer and how I planned it. And sure enough, the buck come in like I planned it, killed it, super dramatic recovery and everything. And it was just one of the most amazing experiences of my life with some of my best friends. And I got a 90% of it on video and, and it was amazing. And so I messaged Dan and I expressed my gratitude, of course, for all of his strategy and stuff. And I said, well, I'll be moving back in a couple of years back to Southeastern Wisconsin by you. Um, and I said, I'd just love to share this film with you so you can see it because it's some of the best memories of my life. And so he's like, you know what? You should come over. Uh, we can do an interview. And I'm, I might be able to use the footage for my channel if it's good enough. And, um, you know, we talked for like three hours that day. I first met him and um, we did interviews on it. We talked for a couple hours afterward. And um, we just really kind of hit it off from a hunting and, and friendship almost perspective. And um, he's like, you know what? Like, you should probably start recording for us like you should keep recording your hunts and and make chat make stuff for our channel and that was you know obviously a dream come true uh, from a from a young kid you know starting to get his way into big bucks on public um you know one of the guys i really look up to there and um yeah ever since then i've been recording for the hunting beast and i, I recently this year started my own channel to kind of supplement it and be kind of a sister channel to the hunting beast where i not only show my kills on the hunting beast in my channel, but I go on my channel much more in depth into the tactics that get me there as well. So prior to finding those blood brothers DVDs, like what was your hunting style and what was like your success rate or the caliber of deer? Like, so when you started going to those camps with your dad, you know, what was the, what was the hunting style? What was the, the culture? Yes. Yeah, so it was mostly gun hunting. Um, I would say 95% of it was gun hunting and, um, our scouting was walking, logging trails and trying to find deer tracks and find a heavy trail or something. You know, we were just looking for travel and it was kill pretty much whatever you saw. You know, we were, we were meat hunting. It'd be awesome if it had antlers, but we weren't really too worried about that. Um, we would go, we would spend a week up there and we'd see probably five deer, you know, an entire week at the very most. Um, and I, and I loved every bit of it, but my success was nowhere near where it was, where it is now. And then 
in high school before I kind of discovered those Blood Brothers DVDs. And I started just cutting my teeth bow hunting, which my dad had stopped doing for a few years. And that's kind of when I picked it up on my own. Um, I was like, man, I can do this hunting thing more than just seven days out of the year. I'm going to go try it. And so, you know, sitting field edges, CRP edges, getting the shakes when I see a six point at 200 yards, like that was, that was it, man. I was thrilled to have does come by. I was thrilled to try and shoot a doe and, um, you know, very, very little success. Um, didn't really understand what was going on. I just remember finding those blood brothers DVDs and heard all this amazing stuff like betting and and betting just enthralled me. And, um, I remember going on the forum. My first question I ever asked on the forum, I made an account so I could ask this question is when the hell did deer bed? Like everyone's talking about all this deer bedding, but I don't even know what time of day they bed. And, and I, and I, I was excited. I was looking for beds and stuff like that. I would sit right over them, but I had no idea when deer even bed it. Um, cause it's funny. It's such a moot point that people just skip over. It's kind of like granted knowledge, but, um, I remember asking that and then, uh, Two years later, after being absolutely, you know, head over heels for it, looking back and seeing how much I learned, it's just amazing. And, and now I can look back at that time frame and know that my knowledge is way more than 10 times what it was. Then. And it's, uh, it's really amazing to see. And, and now my success is far greater, you know, like I don't want to put uh, inches range on the bucks I'm trying to shoot. Uh, but what gets me excited now is is far greater than what it was then. You know, like I, I don't typically like to shoot many things if they're, you know, inside the ears unless they got a really tall rack. And and you know, I'm not necessarily selecting for an antler size, but my goal is to shoot something maybe three and a half years old if it's got some special genetics, but four and a half or older is kind of what I'm shooting for. And um it's it's more so, you know, I don't say that to be condescending to people. Uh I say that because I'm, I'm challenging myself. Like I, I purposely seek out public land and purposely seek out pressured areas. And uh, I want to kill the hardest thing there is out there to kill. <clears throat> and I think that's a cagey old whitetail. And um gets me excited to know that everyone else is trying to do the same thing. I am in the same area with the same equipment. And um I was the one to outsmart that smart animal in the woods and get it done. It just, <clears throat> it's a much more gratifying experience to me. So when, you you found those Blood Brothers DVDs and you kind of started asking the questions and doing all that stuff. Like, what was the one moment like in the woods? Because I can tell you for certain, and I'm by no means a, a bed hunter or anything like that. But was there a moment that like it clicked for you and it was like, this is really this will work. It's right. Like it, I can't imagine it was killing that that deer and calling your shot on your first go around at this right well i would say it was it was a year before that um that year before i actually ate tag soup when i was in college i killed um i killed four bucks in four years or i killed i killed four bucks in five years and um i ate tag soup one of the years but they were all on different properties and um you know they got progressively bigger killed like a hundred eight inch nine point the first year and they progressively got a little bigger and that nice one i killed was like a 133's 10 and so the year that i ate tag soup which was the year before i killed that 133's 10 um i um i was sitting in a on an area and it was kind of like early pre-rut and um i had found a bunch of dope or i had found a bunch of bedding and because of the way it was a grassy open area um it wasn't as intelligent and there were a bunch of beds like i 
was like, oh, I recall this in DVDs. Like, I think this is dope betting. And, um, you know, it, my past kills that I'd had on, on those decent bucks for that area were more, I want to say luck. You know, like one of them was opening day because I had a trail camera on a field edge. I checked it. The buck happened to be doing the exact same thing the next day. I, I That's preparation and stuff. But, you know, this it's not a mature buck. And 99% of the time that buck's going to smell your scent and be out of there, um, especially over a food source on public. But um, it was kind of that scenario type for the next two deer I'd killed. So I was selective the year after a tag soup and I had found this doe bedding this year. Um, and um, I was like, man, this I think this doe bedding. You know, this is on a point of a ridge. There's a trail that runs below this. And um, from what I've seen on these videos, I think there's going to be a thermal rising from the bottom. I think there's going to be a wind going down the point of this ridge. And I think right downwind of these does is actually where that thermal tunnel is going to occur that you hear Dan talk about so often. So that's when the wind current from the sun hitting that ridge, heating up that land, um, causes what really is thermal expansion of the molecules so the, the water molecules in air expand, which causes them to be less buoyant or more buoyant than the other air and makes it rise. That's why you see heat rising and cold falling. So when it's hitting that ridge, it's causing that heat to rise up that ridge and it's causing the wind from the other side going the opposite direction. When those two currents meet, they create kind of a tunnel where a deer has a really unique opportunity to smell what's below him from that rising thermal and what's kind of down that ridge or, or coming from the main wind direction. So he can smell in multiple directions and found this doe bedding. And I was like, man, this is like, this sets up perfectly for a buck to come cruising, you know, in this area. And before this, I had just been throwing a lot of sits on faith. You know, I'd been going by these strategies. They weren't always paying off, you know, it was usually day late and dollar short kind of scenarios. And this one, I was like, man, I have no trail camera data. Like I, I don't have a whole lot of experience, but from everything I've heard, like, I think this might work out. And so the next morning when it sat there and I had like, I had like a, I want to say it was like a 130 come and he, uh, he cruised down that trail and then Jay hooked around into that doe bedding. And I was, he just had brush cover him the whole time and I, I couldn't get a shot off, but to see that buck do like exactly what you think would happen where he. He scoots in that thermal tunnel. You can see him looking down the ridge, looking up the ridge. You know, he scoots around me. I just barely miss his current because I'm really high up in a tree and that I have that main wind catching me. Went over him. He didn't smell me. And um, and then him curl back around, go right up into that doe bedding and check for does. It's just like exactly what I had seen described so many times. And it was to the point where I was one foot in my old tactics and one foot in beast tactics. And I was like, it, it's just time to commit, you know, it's, it's time to, to believe in this. I seen the case in person that I need to, to start having faith in this, you know, that season I was so close to killing bucks so many times. Um, and you know, it just took one more year for me to get it done. And now ever since then I, I've been following it somewhat religiously and, and having a lot more success. And so in, in doing that, and are you strictly, a bed hunter. I mean, I think that that's what always you, you when you think about Dan, it's always mm-hmm. surrounding bedding. I mean, I guess like I can think of the one hunt where he shoots the doe in the snow where he's <laughs> just shooting, you know, I, I guess it's bed to food, but it's, it's not like Dan in fault. You know, you get in there without making a sound and 
the right. deer stands up and you shoot them. Um, from the hunting bee standpoint, like, is that where you're at now is like, like, I guess Jake Bush style where you know where every bed in the County is and, uh, you just <laughs> pick which one you, which trail you think is going to be the right one. Yeah. So I would say all of my sits have bedding in mind. All of my sits are bedding oriented. You could call me a bed hunter through and through for sure. But I, I think the, I, I'm kind of resistant to say that because the initial person is going to only think about betting when they first discover this kind of strategy. And that's where it, it takes some, you know, it takes some cutting your teeth. It takes some developing to start to get this strategy down because most people think about bed and they don't take the time to figure out all the other factors that go into direction of travel from that bed. When that buck is using, using that bed, um, gauging if it is buck bedding or if it's doe bedding or if it's young buck bedding or mature buck bedding. Um, I think there's a lot of other factors that go into it. Um, but I think those factors mean a whole lot less unless you understand where that deer's coming from. And ultimately that deer's coming from or going to his bed, you know? So I would definitely call myself a bed hunter because, um, in these pressured areas, they, they don't make it far from their bed on either end of shooting time, really, unless it's, you know, peak rut. So from that standpoint, do you think that your previous hunting helped you or hindered you? And what I mean by that is when you talk about, is it young buck bedding? Is it doe bedding? Is it big buck bedding? Um, you know, there, I, I feel like there is a, uh, a faction of you have to get out there. You have to make the mistakes. You have to see things mm -hmm. progress. And then you can, you can, you can, you know, recall that. But then from your side of it, from an engineering standpoint, the way that I, from listening to you, from Jake Bush, from people who have that sort of, I, I guess, uh, spreadsheet type mind, Right. Yeah. It, it would seem if it's an equation, then if you learned the equation, you would never have to have hunted before, find these things, plug them in and be successful. So, um, I see both sides of that. Um, so the equation isn't always the same. Not every buck is going to have the same personality and not all the same factors are always going to be at play. Um, I, the, the, it's funny because a certain, equation always reminds me of me trying to plant deer hunting and that's um a, a stress factor in life cycle equation so when you're looking at machinery and you're looking at certain metals you're trying to decide what metal fits for the best application there's all these different factors that get weighted and you basically place your confidence in those factors along the line and every time you have less confidence it takes away or or this this metal doesn't fit your purpose it takes away from that metals quote-unquote score essentially and so the way I look at it is I want all of those factors to align, you know, in order for me to feel like I'm even in the game and it's worth calculating, I want to find a bet, but I want to find food. I want to find certain direction of travel, his track. I want, I want a basing on the time of year he's using it. Like if it's related to dough bedding or if it's related to an early season food source, late season food source, stuff like that. So there's a, there's a lot of factors that go into it that don't make it as cut and dry as just learning the equation. Um, yeah, I mean, I want to I want to extrapolate on that more, but uh it's 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 kind of difficult. Um I would say that 
you can't just learn the equation and then you're good to go. I think it's a very experience oriented thing. But once you have all these, all this experience in and you can relate prior situations to your current one, like you can take the data, let's say that you've gathered in your mind um, or recorded if you're me, um, and you can take all these things you learned over time or you know what you've seen deer in the area doing at this time of year historically, um, you can apply that to your current situation. So that can cut down your learning curve like crazy. Um, and, and as you probably are familiar with, if you've listened to other podcasts and stuff, I spend a lot of time looking at maps and analyzing data and stuff like that. And that's because I can spend a lot more time doing that than I can in the woods. Cause I, you know, I just got, I got life going on, you know, like work, uh, I work a nine hour, no, I mean, 45 to 50 hours a week. And, you know, I, my work follows me home quite often. I do a lot of editing and stuff like that. I can't always, you know, I got family, a girlfriend, I, I can't always get out in the woods to do what I really would rather be doing. And that's scouting and gaining that experience firsthand. So I take the limited amount of experiences I have and I gather every tiny bit of data I can from them. And I make sure I'm certain of what factors are truthfully there and what actually influenced the scenario. Um, and that serves to kind of cut my learning curve down. Um, I call it like forming your instincts when you're new and, and we'll call me new here. Um, Cause I, I feel like if you're in this learning mindset, you always feel new, like you always feel like you're a student of the game, but um, when you're new, you, you don't necessarily have the instinct that a Dan Infault or an Andy May or, or some really experienced guy might have. And I think that's a great thing. I think you have the opportunity to, um, you don't have to listen to every single thing that people say and call it fact. I think you have the opportunity to try these scenarios out and see if it applies to what you're doing. Um, and so if you record your observation and uh, you really break down every bit of it, I think you have the opportunity to really gain an instinct based on what is true for you in your hunting situation. Whereas if you just believe, you know, a Drury or, or, or a Higgins or something like that, and you're like, man, this, you got to have this food plot or whatever, and you spend 10 years getting really good at food plots or something that just doesn't really apply to your situation, like hunting a field edge if you're on, you know, pressured public. Um, then you formed the wrong instinct. You know, it's like in wrestling, if you practice a move incorrectly a thousand times, you basically didn't practice the move at all. You, you actually are making it harder for you to learn the right way to do it. Um, and so if you start fresh and you vet those strategies and you base your experience off of, or you base your knowledge off of actual experience, then you stand to gain knowledge a lot faster than someone that spent their entire growing up, you know, reading magazines and watching Buckmasters and Realtree and whatnot. Yeah. Just kind of, uh, regurgitating things instead of mm -hmm. like actually living them. And I, I would think, and I know I've heard you, um, shy away from it, but I would say that that would be the person that would tell you, you have to do this or you have to do that or everything this, you have to do this every time. And, you know, I think if you've hunted enough, you've seen enough deer, you've had enough encounters, like everything a deer is supposed to do. They've, if you've got a bow or a weapon in your hand, they've done the exact opposite when they needed to oh, yeah. just, you know, that one more step or they should have, or, you know, so deer don't do anything every time. Right. Right. I mean, 
there's a lot of people hunting out there and and especially talking about mature bucks which which keep in mind here like most of the time i i talk about what i do and why i do it it's because i have mature bucks in mind which you know they're they're kind of a different animal it seems like at times but um i i always say like you know if mature bucks would do what we think mature bucks do they wouldn't be alive you know like we have all these strategies and all this stuff that everyone preaches and disagree and bicker and argue about it and it's like if if they did what people thought they did people would kill them a lot more often and and the fact is no matter who you are that deer is winning a lot more than you are um and so i uh i always tell people to keep that in mind you know like if you see something that's atypical ask yourself why and if you can figure out why and then maybe use that the next time the situation pops up you know you you stand a much better chance than if you just believe what someone would say for sure now you had mentioned um doing a lot of map scouting and also like factors in this equation so if you're looking at a new property or you're looking at something for the first time uh on a map what are those factors that you're looking for um so that you can say, oh, okay, this part doesn't work and this, okay, this might work. And, and this, like, how, how are you prioritizing like the features on them, on these maps, these properties? Mm-hmm. So um, the first thing I do is, is when selecting a property, um, I, I look into things like talking to locals, talking to people that have hunted the area. I'll talk to farmers, DNR biologists. Um, and I look into that and I kind of get a feel for, you know, genetics, I get a feel for, um, you know, what people mostly call genetics. Um, I look, I get a feel for what kind of class of buck is in the area. Like if, if the area is truly holding what I want to hunt and then I'll focus my, my attention on that area of a state. And then from there, I like to look for what properties I believe are being overlooked. Um, sometimes in an area of a state or a state that has lower pressure, I'll select a larger property with a lot of features that I like, like it's hill country i'm looking for diverse complex ridge systems with different clear cuts different opening crp agriculture mixed in just a lot of different features that provide well for bedding food and want to hold those deer to that area so that's what i look for in a large property in hill country a large property in marsh country uh, which i'm hunting now i like to look for expansive cattails i think deer just survive well in cattails um you know tamarack swamps work well um, just an area where gun pressure can't always kill them, you know, where the deer can stay hidden and they can survive uh, surrounding agriculture to give them plenty of, of food and stuff, nutrients. I, I look for that a lot. Um, and once I've kind of identified that property on a large scale, if I find that there's a whole lot of pressure and I wasn't expecting it, I actually look for small pieces and lesser known pieces. Like um, in Wisconsin, we have VPA, MFL. Uh, CFL, all sorts of lands that are kind of a little bit less known. Uh, we have a few conservancies, things like that, that most people might not know is public. I look for those and I look for small chunks adjacent to really, really large chunks. So some of my best pieces that I found are 60 acres adjacent to 2000 or 40 acres adjacent to 5000. And the bucks have the same genetics as what everyone else is chasing on that giant piece that's one mile away. But it's often getting overlooked because everyone wants to have the option to keep chasing a deer. Um, and, you you know, you might find one to two spots in that whole 40 or whole 60 or whole 90. That's good. But it can serve really great because it's probably getting a fraction of the pressure per acre as that really large piece. Because nowadays, you know, everyone wants to go in deep. So 
when I when I select that property, like I said, I'm looking for a diverse cover or a large expanse that keeps those deer alive. Um, and then I'm I'm just really trying to narrow down their bedding. You know, I'm, I'm trying to in hill country, I identify all the ridges that are leeward for the predominant wind, so that wind is coming from the opposite direction that they're facing. Um, so you know, if you typically have a west wind, I'm looking for a lot of east facing slopes, slopes that go downward to the east. Um, and I'm looking for those slopes occurring on points that have little kind of jut outs. Um, I use a lot of uh, two inch or two foot contours and I use a lot of LIDAR mapping to try and identify, you know, unique knobs. Um, and I look for any, as much betting as possible for that predominant wind. Cause you know, it's all, it's all an odds game to me, you know, like it's a, uh, whatever best supports, um, you know, that deer being in that situation, you want to stack as many factors in as you can. And I think bucks bed in a, I think mature bucks bed in an area that gives them most advantages. And to me, that's a, a leeward side where they have the potential to smell below them and above them at the same time. And so I look for a lot of bedding. I prioritize the areas that are like that. Um, I look for bedding that is downwind of common human access. So I'll turn off the leaf. Uh, I'll do leaf off mode. I'll look at logging trails. I'll identify where I think people are getting to. Um, I'll cross off areas I think people are getting to. And I'll start to make that map that's huge look a lot smaller. And I'll usually come to about 20% of the entire map is an area that I think a mature buck's going to spend time in. And then with the remaining time I have, I just burn it boots on the ground. You know, like in, in a marsh, it might be isolated cover that I'm looking for typically. But um, I, I just burn boots on the ground and I check out every one of those areas I can. Um, a lot of the times, that's checking little poplar groves or cedar groves um, before that bedding. You know, if I have a, 10 places to scout in a day, I'll check an area that I think a mature buck rub should show up um, if he's using that bedding. And I'll use whether there is a mature rub there or not to eliminate areas that I might not have time for. So I have 10 areas and I can only hit three in a day. And three of these ridges are blown up with rubs, you know, 200 yards from the supposed bedding and six of them are okay and the rest are trash i'll prioritize those three and you know there might be a big buck on each of those ridges might be a big buck on another one but i'd say my odds are a little bit better for the one that's absolutely blown up the rubs so um i'll look for that i'll look for bedding that gives me high confidence of a time of year so stuff that has a lot of shade i'll look for like um a north facing slope for early season uh, so it's retained shade quite a bit. I look oftentimes for stuff that is downwind of what I suppose to be doe bedding. So you know, if I identify doe bedding boots on the ground right away, I like to hunt bedding and, and identify buck bedding that's downwind of that typically. Um, thick cover, stuff like that. I like buck bedding that's downwind of that. It helps me have a little bit of an incentive on when that buck's going to be there. Um, the same thing with marshes, but marshes a lot more manual effort. You know, it's a lot of actually touching absolutely everything because um, you know, they're in some really off the wall places. And then once I go out there and I scout, I look at where, you know, my tracks and my markers have led me and I'd start to stand back and identify what was I overlooking, you know, like what are the spots that I thought were great right away? And what are the spots that I don't think a human's hitting? Um, and I didn't consider at all. And, you know, with the time I have remaining, I'll go check those out. And those can be some of my best spots, you know, there's plenty of times that these are duds, but you know, there's little patches of timber right off of a lot or, um, 
you know, some cover that just seems like it, it should have got hunted. And a lot of people are thinking the same thing. And, um, I'll go check those areas out and some of them pan out great and some of them don't, but, but basically I'm going with my highest odd scenarios first. Um, I'm going for where I think that mature buck's going to be bedded based on all the intelligence factors. I think a mature buck uses when he beds. Um, I'll try to focus in on those beds that I have a certainty on the time of year. And then I'll start looking for overlooked spots and see if those pan out for me. And when I was talking to some of the listeners about uh, this podcast, one of the things that kept coming up was uh, when you're doing your map scouting, um, how are you telling like the different types of trees? Like if you're looking for oak trees or things like that, like what is it that are, are you able to do that? Or do you have any tips for that? Uh, I, I used Onyx for this in the past, but Spartan Forge, man, if they have UAV imagery, you can zoom way in and you can actually see, especially in the shadows of the tree, you can kind of see the branch structure of that tree. So I've been able to identify oak trees doing that. Um, but in the past, it's been using different times of year, usually fall imagery. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking like late fall, right around, right before leaf drop. Um, and I'm looking at, uh, I'm looking for trees. If I'm looking for oaks, you know, a lot of the times you'll see just that patch that is still holding leaves a little bit later, or they look like orange cauliflower essentially is kind of what they look like on the top. And you can kind of see that localized cover. Um, the, the one that's, I'd say is easiest is poplars, your, your aspens and cedars. You know, it's going to look like the cedar is just going to be like kind of like a green blob. Um, poplars, you're going to see little white branches breaking out. And usually they're in little isolated patches. And I just find that like, you know, bucks love to hit poplars. They like to hit a lone cedar, you know, they like to hit that lone pine. And um, that's areas that I'll identify beforehand and I'll mark them as areas to check out, qualify whether it's worth pursuing that bedding before I go check it out. Um and I guess that's kind of hard to explain over words, but but really um, the easiest one to identify is going to be those poplars with white tops, cedars coming up next. And then um, once you get your boots on the ground and you are in an oak patch, mark it, and then go back on that map. This is the whole recording data thing. Go back on the map and see if you can differentiate between what was oaks and what wasn't. And soon enough, you'll have marked that enough. And you'll have gone back and checked your map enough that it becomes a little bit of second nature. You start to see trees in a different way. Another thing too is like thickets. You can actually kind of identify thickets and maps with leaf off imagery because the whole ground will look super shaded. Um, and, and it's just because there's so many branches in there, even when, you know, the leaves are off, they're thick. You know, there's a, if you can dial it to any day that you want, there will be green there when everything else is brown. But, um, even if everything, it's like the, the barren winter and there's no snow on the ground, you'll see that that area is shaded because there's just so much more stem count in there. Uh, that, that's the other thing I identify sometimes right away, too. And so you had mentioned um, earlier and just kind of like in passing, and you said you're using Spartan Forge a little bit more. They've now got the LIDAR. And I know you had said uh, before that like some of the Wisconsin maps have LIDAR also. How are you utilizing LIDAR? Like, can you give an example of like where that is better than regular topography or, mm-hmm. you know, what, how you're using that specifically? Yeah. So LIDAR, I guess not all LIDARs are built equal because some of them actually use like 10 foot gradient. So like they start to show difference at 10 feet, but specifically the two foot difference or five foot and less, it's typically two. Um, 
shows just so much detail. And I love using that in Hill Country. It doesn't do a whole lot in marshes because kind of like cattails and stuff plays with it a little bit. You know, it's hard for them to differentiate sometimes. But in Hill Country, man, like I, you can go down a point and see every little tiny knob. You know, if you think about two feet, you know, a buck probably needs like a five foot area, five foot wide, or, you know, sometimes three or four to bed. Two feet, you're going to see those tiny little outcroppings on ridges. You're going to see those little dimples um, often coming off of like small drainages. Those, man, I love using LIDAR for that. And and then also benches. Um, LIDAR is really, really good for kind of seeing that that little bit of relief in a hillside that's what normally would be steep. Um, gosh, LIDAR is great for that. And so to me, LIDAR is is identifying those tiny little outcroppings, those tiny little knobs. And those are areas that, you know, I'm, I'm dropping away point to check out right away for bedding. Um, what's nice about those features when you identify them is whereas a giant ridge point, a, a buck can't see the other side of it. You know, he can't see down the whole length of it necessarily. Um, he can't see all around it. So, you know, he's got to go on faith or go on wind or go on his sight and hearing to try to monitor the areas that he can't observe. Um in a small knob, that buck can see 360 around it. And if he gets that wind direction coming back from the mainland out over the point of that knob, like he's in a pretty hard to kill setup. And, and you know, that's the deer I'm trying to chase is the ones that are hard to kill. Cause those are the ones that's going to live a long time. So um, yeah, any little tiny knob or bench or, or possible relief where they may be traveling. Uh, it's something that becomes a lot more apparent in LIDAR than it does in top for sure. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking in my head of like Southern Ohio and some of the things that I saw down there and and kind of even going back like so I bumped a couple of different deer off of these points and when we went back when like the leaves were off so it was really difficult you know they could see forever and then also an area where there was a bench and there were scrapes on it and all the stuff. And it was kind of like, it, it did look like it was just steep. Like if you were down in the bottom, you, you couldn't recognize it. And then when I was up in the tree, I was like, I think that there's something up there. So I climbed up there after the hunt and I was like, man, this is where I needed to be. Uh, um, right. you know, it, but like you said, like going back now, I've got those spots marked. So to go back with LIDAR and say, okay, can I identify these things? And then can I extrapolate that to the next spot or the next time? Um, so when you're doing things like that, uh, of that nature, how are you organizing this information? Because I'm absolutely terrible, like with my map pins and especially ones from like last year or ones that I do like e-scouting and ones that I do like boots on the ground. Like I don't label them correctly. So I have to look at like the dates and I'm like the, all the colors I just like whatever I was feeling that day. Um, like, so with that type of information, like how are you organizing it so that you're, or is it just your mechanical mind can say, <laughs> Oh, I know I, I've got all of this. I do not have the best mind in the world. Um, <laughs> so no, I don't, I don't always have all of it. Um, but I would say I do a lot of categorization and I do a lot of color coding. I, I use Onyx for this. I just think I, mean, I haven't experimented a whole lot with marking points in Spartan Forge, but man, I love Onyx's system for it. And so uh, what I do 
is I have, obviously I use icons. I, I always use a different icon. Uh, I make sure that's appropriate from the get-go. But I have kind of a color coding system. Um, I use red for human danger. I, I, I think red signifies danger to me, so I use that for other hunter sign. Um, I use aqua, that kind of light blue color for access. Uh, you know, the alliteration just makes sense to me. Uh, but my access routes and common access routes for other people, uh, I draw those and I keep aware of them. I use brown for old sign, uh, historical sign. It's kind of how I see a non-fresh rub. And so <clears throat> that's how I generally think of it. You know, you see old tracks, old scrapes, old rubs. Um, I use that as sign. I kind of want to keep an eye on, but, you know, it might not be the thing I'm hunting over or basing my sit on. Um, I use that gold color, that yellow for hot, fresh sign. It's it's like fire to me, you know, so I, I categorize all my fresh sign that I come across. And obviously that date's attached to that point. Um, and I'll often take a picture of that as well. Um, and I put that in a, in a folder for, you know, sure buck fresh or whatever. Um, and I put in a folder for the time of year as well. Um, just so I get a general feel. And, um, so that's how I mark hot, fresh sign. Uh, I mark blue points for extremely high confidence spots, pink points for possible spots. So like if it's something I want to go check out, I, it's possibly what I think it is. I'm going to mark it pink. If it's something identifying the map that's making, you know, light bulbs trigger left and right, I mark it white. You know, it, it's something that really, really stands out against the map. And then uh, when I place trail cameras, I mark them in black because I don't use black for anything else. Um, yeah. And I, I'll use, I've recently started using green. I used to use green for your run of the mill. Average sign, probably not in trip book, but just good sign. Good stuff to keep aware of. Good screen. Um, and so what I do is, is I mark all those with those different uh, the correct waypoint that I want and the right color that I want. And what I can do is filter all my waypoints by color. So like if I want hot sign and I'm just struggling like mid October, or whatever, what I'll do is I'll filter all my points to be hot sign and blue sign only. So stuff that I know is mature stuff that I know is fresh. And then I'll filter the dates down to the kind of range that I'm about to be hunting. And so I can historically all across the state, see like when that hot sign was popping up and then I'll throw in the red and I'll see, well, when did I mark hunter sign in this area? Do I think hunters have been back to it yet? Or do I think there's someone hunting it right now? Um, so it's kind of, and you can, you can in your mind probably see how that works. You know, like if I got folders for doe bedding, mature buck bedding, stuff like that, all this stuff categorized, it really just takes a couple clicks at that point to zone in on what I want to see for this time of year. Like it's scrape week, man. I want a fresh scrape. Well, last year there were 10 fresh scrapes in this area. I'm going to go hunt it now. You know, that's, that's kind of how I leverage it. And, um, really doesn't take a whole lot to take a picture, throw in a couple notes, change the waypoint type, change a color that 10 seconds, 20 seconds on the front end, man, does that pay off, you know, going down the season when, uh, you know, where the sign has popped up historically and, uh, you can just keep building off of that experience. And so are you, uh, whether it's in the app or somewhere else, are you like journaling your hunts to go back and kind of look and see what happened last year? Or is everything done mm -hmm. like on the maps? So I previously just kept notes on waypoints, but I've actually started. Um, I made like an Excel journal that you know has like a drop down menu and I can click a bunch of different options. So it has everything under the sun that you could think of. Um, and so I'm going to start doing that this year to keep like an official journal. I think it'd be really cool to look back at it. Uh, I also film all my hunts. So, you know, I can always look back at film. Uh, I'll keep an encyclopedia of what happened that year. Um, and anything that was eventful, I'll save. And, you know, you can just look in your file system by date. 
Uh, that's a good way to do it too. Um, but trail camera data, I, I keep an actual Excel sheet of trail camera data. Um, and I use that. I, I, I look at the wind, the temperature. I look at the dew point, the time of day. I look at the time of year. I look at, um, you know, precipitation, how far away it was away from a wind switch. If there was a wind switch during the day, I look at everything you could possibly imagine. And then I also compare it to what the yearly averages were. So if it's an abnormally hot time of year, abnormally cold, abnormally wet, all these different things. Um, I look at all of those factors and I use them to kind of sort through my data for, for trail cameras. And what that really does is like when you go and you pull cards at the end of the year or, or you're, you know, reviewing all your cell camera footage and stuff like that, you, you don't have the freshness in your mind of what was going on at the time of year and what the temperature and weather and stuff was like, and especially in those unique spots. And what it does is it makes the, the patterns that those deer may be on or the conditions that they prefer when they're in that area extremely apparent. So that's like the really heavy hitting recording I'm doing is with my trail cameras. But um, as far as like my hunts in general, I had a, a pretty general way of, of recording it. And, and that's when I kind of leveraged my mind, just remembering it for the most part. But trail camera data, stuff where I wasn't present and don't have as much of a intrinsic connection to what happened. Um, the stuff that's harder to forget. I actually record that and then I break it down on a basis of everything you can imagine, essentially. So I'm going to play uh devil's advocate here uh, a little <laughs> bit. So don't, don't take this the wrong way. I'm just, so for the, for the listener, right. There's guys out there that are probably saying there is no way in hell that I'm going to do this. Um, and so at any point, I mean, obviously there's a way, uh, there, there's a, there's a word like uh obsession, right? Where <laughs> that can have a negative connotation. Um, mm -hmm. But it would seem like at some point it could take the fun out of it. Um, mm -hmm. So are you that way in like the other portions of your life where everything has so uh, structured that it's, it's all about the end goal or is it like, cause some people like the journey. And I mm -hmm. think that maybe that in some ways when you're outlining that stuff and you said earlier, like maybe some people do it in their mind and some people, you know, haven't been able to do that. Like the, mm -hmm. the old guys, the guys that trap or like the Dan Infaults or, mm -hmm. um, the, I know Andy's kept journals forever. I've, I've never, I don't think I've heard Dan talk about that so much. Um, but that like, woodsman that stuff probably leads to woodsmanship do you think that there's going to be like a day that you're like well i don't need to keep all this data because i have five Experience. ten years of patterns that i know now what it's doing yeah for sure no definitely i mean to me it's it's just right now i'm it's hard to even say obsessed because or passionate you know it just feels so much deeper than that for me like it's odd to say to someone that may not feel the same way. And I'm not saying it's you, but probably some of your audience. Like I, I feel like my purpose in life is to be out here in the woods and, and, and help people do it as well. You know, that's what I find value in myself from. And so it, um, it's in, in all those aspects, it doesn't take the fun away from me. It, it just excites me so much to be learning about it. And I think this is a way that helps me learn. 
Um, in other areas of my life, I'm certainly not like that. You know, like I'm not nearly as obsessed about anything like I am about hunting. Um, I'm not recording all this data and stuff like that, but you know, at the same time, taking notes, you know, always helps my memory. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there might be a day when that comes, um, you know, sometimes I'm pretty sick of going into this Excel sheet and taking weather underground data, copy and pasting it in for all these different trail camera pictures that I get a mature buck on. But like right now it's justified by how much I love it. So, you know, I think eventually someday that I will shy away from it. Um, especially like the hard driven data aspect of it. But I don't think it will necessarily be because I don't need it anymore. And I don't think it's helping me because I think it, I think it is a strategy that can always help someone. Like uh, even on my recent trip to Nebraska, like the way that I recorded data and, and tracked previous encounters is something that helped me like crazy where Dan suffered from not doing it. And, and he actually reaped some of the benefits of my doing it as well. So even a guy like him can benefit from it. Um, but there have been years and there's been times and months and, and parts of the season where I don't do that because I just, I just want to have that wild experience again. You know, like I don't want it to be based on just this data. I just want to go by that feeling, you know? Um, and I think right now in my career, I'm not killing enough giants every single year to, to tell myself I've done enough learning to just go off of that. And I'm putting a lot of focus on like, try and get as good as I can as quickly as possible. Um, but you know, out of state trips, stuff like that, like, man, I'm just out there slinging arrows. I'm out there having fun and, and it's not all about that data recording, you know, at those moments. But, um, I think it's something I could always benefit from, but it's not something I'm always going to do. You know, if, if I don't want to do it and I get sick of it, I just want to go out there and, and go off what's in the noggin. Like I'm going to go for it. I don't think anyone has to do it too, to be good either. So in recording all this data and using it, um, to, to find success and having success using it. What is the one or two bits of information that you've gleaned in all of this, you know, data collection that, you know, maybe people don't talk about or that you thought, Oh, that's not a big deal. And it turns out like these little things are, are what kill deer. Um, I would say there's a lot of information out there nowadays. That's right. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's right. Um, I think the thing that people neglect a lot is how unique each buck is in each scenario is because there are times that, you know, that buck is just not like, it's not doing what you think. But one thing I found that I think a lot of people, this leads to a lot of people being discouraged, but everyone talks about bucks habitually using areas, man. Like I found that I could be right in a buck's bedroom. And it's a big deal if that buck does the same thing two days in a row and pressured by it. And it's, I mean, all of last year, I never saw a buck do the same thing three days in a row. And only three instances did I see a buck do the same thing two days in a row. But there was almost always a reason that that buck was doing what he was doing. And the key is focusing on that reason and not that you think this buck is just going to habitually use that area. And you think about what that means too. It usually means that once you get that cell camera picture, that was the day and that was your window. If, you know, if he doesn't repeat the next day, which they didn't do the vast majority of the times, even in their favorite bedrooms, um, you know, that means you're missing that data if you wait for that picture. So I think that's something that a lot of people don't emphasize. You know, everyone likes talking about the scenario where they found that buck wants to be and he shows up day in and day in, day in and day out. And, you know, when I went to Nebraska recently, I saw that and it 
because it was an extremely unpressured area. Like I saw the same bucks doing the same thing three, four days in a row. Um, you know, it's early season, hot conditions and unpressured area. And that's reasonable. But just because you're not seeing that doesn't mean that you're not doing the right thing. Um, now, as far as factors that led to the bedding, I don't think enough or led to me killing that it, people don't key on. Um, I don't think enough people talk about how the pre-rut can make bucks habitual, how bucks can actually favor certain doe groups and and favor those times of year and year after year their most consistent patterns for me are pre-rut and rut. And it's because they work that cycle. I mean, again, I'm talking mature bucks. They work that cycle of does in their preferred order, you know, the order that they know they come into heat over and over again. And so, you know, there are three-day gaps where I'm pretty sure a buck's going to show up in this area and he might be a mile away, you know, might be in the next area he hits. And someone's going to look at that at a GPS collar. Or someone's going to look at that on their cameras and be like, damn, this buck's going everywhere. He was here one day and then he was there a mile away. But relative to what he did last year, he's actually being pretty consistent. So I think that's something not a lot of people talk about is how they almost get more patternable when when they're uh, thinking with something other than their brain, we'll say. Um, and I think another interesting, two interesting things I picked up on is wind switches and dew point. Um, I noticed when that dew point's like um, just fading out, like just when that that um, just when that dew is coming off of the grass is right around the time they've pretty much settled their bed or, or areas where, or times when the moisture is heaviest in the air, we'll say are times that I get a lot of movement. I think it has to do with their confidence and ability to being able to, to scent and win the things around them. Um, it might be a factor just, you know, time of day, like the dew points and, and humidity typically correlate with the beginning and end of your day. But um, that's when I see bucks doing a little bit more movement, a little bit more shifting is when they get, a wind switch that provokes them to move their bedding a little bit, especially if it's a drastic wind switch, they'll move a little, little further. Um, and especially in times when there's a lot of moisture in the air, um, that's kind of when I see them making some moves that you wouldn't typically expect of the air. But, you know, you can really only key in on those if you understand where he is in the first place. So that might not be something that everyone wants to just focus on right off the bat. Um, but if you know where he's going to be, you might want to be targeting at one of those times. I'm trying to think of like how that, um, I guess you're just saying that the deer are on their feet more when there's more moisture in the air. And as the moisture settles out, then they want to be back to their bed. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm concerned that it is that factor that it's just that, that as the moisture settles out, they want to be back in their bed. But I honestly, I honestly do believe that it's because, scent is held better in the air. You know, when there's more moisture content, there's more H2O in the air. It holds scent molecules. And and I honestly think that they have higher confidence, you know, roaming around at that time. Um, you know, it's not something that plays a huge factor, but it's something that I've seen enough that it's kind of like, you know, tripping my trigger to it a little bit. Um, you know, it's not something where like I'm only targeting during this time. That's the most moisture rich time of the day, but but honestly, I do see a little bit more movement on days that are a little bit more moisture rich, um, especially on like scrapes and stuff like that too. When, um, you know, post rain, I see it, but, and I truthfully believe it's not them trying to refresh that scrape. I think that water is reviving a lot of scent molecules that are hidden in that scrape. And it's a great time for them to get inventory. 
I actually think it improves their ability to smell that scrape rather than, you know, disintegrates it. So this gets uh, asked a lot of different guys uh, in different scenarios. So I'm going to ask you same thing. Like if you had to pick one day, cause you got all the data that you doesn't, doesn't matter. I, and I know you're going to say, well, it depends on the piece and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But if you had a crazy work schedule and everything, and you said, we said, Jacob only has one day to hunt to kill a big deer. Like what day would you be hunting? Yeah. So I'll give you my scenario for, for the two areas I've been hunting. I'll, I'll give you my scenario for Southeastern Wisconsin. I'll give you my scenario for Southwestern Wisconsin, Southeastern Wisconsin marshes opening day. I, I want to be out there opening day. If you had to give me a week, it'd be opening week. And that's just because like, man, those oaks are a freaking draw on the marshes. And if you can beat it, I, f- I found that in these high pressure areas, it's not beating someone to the Oak Island. It's beating them to the adjacent bedding ground. If you can hit that before they really hammer the heck out of that Oak Island, because everyone's walking a mile out in the marsh on Oak Island nowadays because of Dan. No offense to him. You know, it's good advice, but it's kind of been overworked now. Um, if I can beat them to that best bedding that monitors that favorite food source at that time of year, tell those bucks are going to be around, man, that's, that's hard to beat. Um, but if you had to throw me in Western Wisconsin, I would honestly say like October 24th or 25th. Um, and if I had to pick a week, it'd be the 21st to the 28th. And um, I, the reason I say that is because I got some dope, like fawn drop dates and some dope, you know, uh, heat patterns to the point where I had does bleating and bucks chasing and grunting after them on October 18th and October 20th were just insane rut action. And, and it was, it was just wild because it was those first does coming into heat. Um, and, uh, I really like that pre-rut period because those bucks are starting to get they're They're in their ranges that I've been able to observe them the majority of the year and in their ranges, I've been able to monitor them the majority of the year. They're starting to move a little bit more and they're starting to move in accordance to does more. And that makes them just much more susceptible to my strategy. You know, it, it's a little bit, the does can bed pretty much anywhere in a cattail swamp, you know, anywhere that's dry. Um, but they're pretty selective about thickets and a little bit thicker areas and, and CRP and stuff like that in hill country. So um, when I have a buck bedding down, and uh, I know he's going to be moving in relation to does and he's going to be doing it a little bit earlier and he's starting to get ornery and compete with other bucks. Man, that's a special time to be in the woods. So in that scenario, are you, uh, I know you just mentioned buck bedding, but are you kind of throwing out that um, attacking the, the buck bed? Are you throwing that out the window to favor so, downwind side of uh, doe bedding, you know, just travel corridors or, or how is that, uh, what's the strategy there? So I'll focus a little more down one side of doe bedding when, um, as long as the pressure hasn't hit yet, when it gets right in, towards that peak rut, like early November, late October, um, that's when I'll shy a little bit more away from buck bedding. Um, if I believe it's places where bucks aren't coming from bedding on the piece I'm hunting, like a lot of times the piece isn't big enough to hold the bedding, but they'll come to doe bedding on my piece. Um, I'll, I'll, cut the travel between them. So I'm thinking of the sign and I'm thinking of the doe bedding always in relation to where that buck's coming from, where his bed is. 
Um, so, so it's never completely out of my mind. I don't necessarily forego it in order to be down with a dough bedding, but it's certainly a great scenario to be in when you aren't pinpointed at a buck or his bed. And, you know, say you're, you've just busted out a lot of your high confidence spot. It didn't quite work spots and it didn't quite work out for you. That's not a bad place to be is downwind of doe bedding, you know, especially a place where a buck can wind a lot of doe bedding at one time and, and check a lot of different individual doe beds for that one in heat. Um, I like being downwind of really, really thick thickets um, in that late pre-rut to rut uh, t- stage. I like being downwind of extremely thick thickets because those does that are getting um, disturbed by bucks constantly. I love to go in an area that's really hard for a buck to get his antlers through. And they know he's coming and they know they can hunker down or get away. That's when you'll see like those really thick areas with just like rubs torn up on the outside. It's just like a duck, uh, a doe in heat holding herself up in there and bucks, you know, rubbing up like crazy in the outside marking, defending their territory, defending, you know, her, their right to her, uh, keeping other bucks away. That's when you get some really special sits. So I love that. But, but really in that pre rut frame, I'm just noting them, noticing them adjusting the direction they're traveling and, the length in which they travel in daylight a little bit more. So it's very in relation to buck bedding, but, but I'll give you a scenario where it changes a bit is if I have multiple buck bedding going towards a localized doe bed, that doe bed or the doe bedding area becomes a hub, you know, it becomes the more centralized place for that, those deer to be traveling to. So, um, again, it's a game of odds, you know, if I got four buck beds and, um, a hundred yards away, I have one doe bed that all those bucks are going to go to. It's probably a lot better for me to hunt closer to that doe bedding than it is to one of those buck beds that may or may not be getting used and may or may not be getting used by the buck I want to kill. So in that scenario, are you hunting? I mean, because it seems like Dan only hunts evenings, you know, when he's attacking Mm -hmm. these beds. So are you uh, of that same, you know, camp or are you saying, Okay, well, as we get further into the rut, now I'm hunting all day, like in in that week. Okay, so like you said, you know, October 21st to the 28th or whatever. Mm-hmm. Are you doing all day sits at that time or are you, mm-hmm. what are you doing? Yeah, yeah, I'm doing all day sits. Um, and my all day sits aren't always sitting in the same stand. Usually it's, um, usually it's sit in the morning in a high confidence spot and then um, adjusting to deer movement and, and moving a little bit further. If I see nothing, I'll hit another spot for the afternoon. Um, you know, so nowadays you'll have a cell cam pop off in an area and you'll, you'll move there in the afternoon. So I'm usually doing some kind of movement unless it was like I was set up perfectly. And if I get out of here, I'm busting everything on the way out. Uh, I'll sit in the same tree all day if I have to uh, a lot of the time. But um you know, let's say I don't have a super high confidence morning area. I'll observe in the morning. You know, I'll sit back in an area where I can hop up off of a creek and, and get way up in a tree, or I can be on a ridge side watching a, um, an area that I think a lot of action is going to go down. And I'll make an adjustment in the afternoon according to what I see in the morning. Um, I really like employing that strategy. And that's something that actually helped me a lot in Nebraska uh, this year. You know, obviously it wasn't, wasn't rut, you know, it was September 1st and on, but um, a lot of, my afternoon sits turned out a lot better as you'll see as these videos start to come out uh, because of observation in the morning. And, and it was certainly a blast doing that. And so uh, Wisconsin starts here tomorrow, right? It's uh, Saturday, Saturday. Okay. So I know it's pretty close. So what's, what's your early season strategy? What are your plans? Are you going to be tagged out by uh Sunday? That's the goal, man. Uh, 
you know, we scout all year to get it done as soon as possible here. But, um, yeah, my, my strategy here, uh, if I had to give you an opening day scenario, um, one, I'm going to wait till Friday. I'm going to wait till tomorrow to look at the wind because I always get my hopes way too far up. And then that wind direction changes and I got to completely relocate. I have less confidence going in more to opening day if I relocate, but, um, yeah, so I'm going to go in to an area that I, I kind of like to gauge where the pressure is going to hit it first. And um, my first sit is going to be an area where I'm not certainly sure that someone's going to be there. You know, I'll be scouting my way in and observing whatnot. I'm not definitely sure someone's going to be there, but I don't. I think it's quite, quite remote that it's going to receive pressure as the year goes later on. So I kind of want to get in there while it's still a good spot before it gets busted out. That's probably what I'll spend my time opening day doing is um, – outskirts of what right now is a hot dropping oak island is what i'm thinking and then um you know there's obvious bedding cover on on the isolated areas around there um i'll phase to that probably second day if you know progressing into that first week of the season um and then off of that isolated cover that's obvious like your patches of willows and stuff like that there will be just tiny little whippets of red brush and, and just tiny little things on the side that little dry points that probably couldn't even get a tree stand into and that's what I'll start to focus on after that. Um, I fully expect people to, as the season goes on, start busting up the Moke Islands, you know, if they're not doing it already in the early season. And then I start, expect them to eventually discover the, um, you know, those isolated trees that they could probably get a stand in. But I don't really think they're hunting much areas that they got to hunt on the grounds when their feet are wet. And so that's kind of going to be a big strategy for me. And, and of course, scouting my way in, making sure that that buck I want and it's truthfully in that area that I'm about to be hunting. Um, that's how I'm going to kind of go about it going out in the season and just bumping from piece to piece. You know, if I bump out a deer, it's no big deal. You know, I put in hundreds and hundreds of miles in the spring and the, in the summer so I can keep moving to other pieces if I screw something up. So. Well, awesome. Now, if you do kill opening weekend because of the tag situation and everything, then, then what do you do? Because I think like one of those things, that us as hunters and I think myself and you know my buddy uh, Josh has said it very articulately like once you punch that tag or that you know second tag or whatever like in here in Michigan like it's over and you know for as many hundreds of miles that you put in the woods you know to to kill on opening day and have the bow season be over um you know, uh, how would that sit with you? I mean, the, we love the chase, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's gotta be a hell of a deer to kill opening weekend, honestly. Uh, but at the same time, there's always stuff I can do related to deer hunting. Uh, you know, Wisconsin, if, if people aren't familiar, you get one bow tag, one gun tag, um, gun tag is almost always like a meat hunt for me because the pressure is just crazy during gun season here. It's absolutely wild. So I don't really hold out for something great. Sometimes I'll say that tag for muscle loader season, I'll bow hunt during muzzleloader season using that gun tag and because um, we have a lesser weapon law. And, um, you know, I've gotten some great opportunities then too. So um, I got at least that a little bit to look forward to. But um, honestly, when I'm in an area that's fresh, like I'm just going to keep bumping around scouting. You know, I'm going to keep figuring out more about these areas. Uh, and it, it's, man, you get a lot of intel when you can just blow up an area and, and figure out exactly what that buck's doing. You don't have to stop it a certain amount of sign or certain proximity to that bedding, you can get some really, really cool Intel. You can figure out, you're, I mean, you're going to drop a lot of yellow waypoints, you know, like you're going to, you're going to find out when that fresh sign's popping up uh, pretty much anywhere. So I love doing that. 
I'll sit back and observe. I'll get a hell of a lot better at editing videos. <laughs> I, I've been working really hard on that for this series at least, but I'll get better at that. You know, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot I can do. Um, I'll even just go out and do a sit like I'm hunting and won't bring my bow. Um, and a lot of times it's with a buddy, you know, trying to get him on a deer or something like that. But man, I just love watching deer. I love when that guest turns out right, you know, and, and that just is what the thrill is to me. And sometimes I get to punch that trigger. Sometimes I don't, but man, I I'm obsessed with it. And really it's just not even about the kill to me anymore. So like if I see something I want to kill, I'll kill it. Um, but it's not going to rob me the experience of, of hunting because it's about so much more to me than just punching that trigger. And so other than the honeybees, like what's your channel? Where can people follow along? And if they've got questions or anything like this, uh, this stuff, like how can they get a hold of you? Yeah. So, um, I, uh, my personal channel is the wild calling. Um, so that we're the wild calling on YouTube and we're wild calling outdoors on, uh, Instagram. I believe it's the same on Facebook as wild calling or wild calling outdoors. Um, you can message me on Facebook. Um, you can, you know, follow along on my personal profile is just my name, Jacob Sklenner. Um, I'll be posting all my videos and stuff on, uh, Instagram and I'll be posting them on Facebook. So, you know, when they're coming out, uh, for YouTube, and, uh, you know, you can message me anywhere. You drop a comment. I respond to every single comment on my YouTube videos. Um, you know, I respond to everyone that messages me. Uh, so if you have a question, you know, feel free. It might take a second to get back to you, but, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to help. And, and please share, you know, if like you have some success too, especially if you, you learn something from the videos, you know, there's nothing greater to me than seeing someone find some value in the content I bring them. You know, that's, that's my live stream right there. Awesome. Well, uh, before we wrap it up, there's a question that we always ask and John's not here. So I forgot. So what is your bow setup? Like what, what's your bow arrow broadhead setup? Yeah. So, um, there's a, there's a big story to how I got the bow. Um, I shoot a Hoyt RX four. Um, you know, I was telling you about the first time I ever had a video with Dan and fall. I broke my collarbone. I wasn't gonna be able to afford a bow for a very long time. Um, so, uh, I carried that deer on my shoulders and, um, I, I was really inspired by Cameron Haynes that year. So the whole summer I was doing that lift run shoot and bought the keep hammering shirt. And my whole model that summer is to keep hammering. So when I got to that point where I was ready to give up, I just had that model ringing in my head and I uh, carried that bucket on my shoulders. Like I'd seen Cameron Haynes do before. And I sent him the video and I said like, Hey, thank you for inspiring me. I had all this stuff happen to me. Um, but your model kept ringing through and, um, you know, I got it done and achieved a lifelong dream. And he said, um, wow, man, that's awesome. I think you deserve something a little more than just a buck for your efforts. What's your draw length? And I about put myself <laughs> and he sent me an RX4 and uh, I, I haven't even talked to the guy since. I've tried telling him thank you a few times, but he's gotten so popular. But yeah, that's why I have that bow. <laughs> I'm absolutely blessed to have that thing and, and to be able to kind of carry on that, that legacy that he has there. Um, but yeah, besides that, that bow that is extraordinarily special to me, um, I shoot uh, VAP arrows. I think it's like a 400 spine. And um, my total weight for my arrow setup is about 550 grains. I have a 95 grain outsert on the on the end and a 125 grain G5 Montec. Um, I just love that. I love cut on contact blades. I love that three blade. It punches a really big hole that it's really hard for them to, you know, just sit on and cover up because them big bucks are tough, especially when they get in these corn-fed areas with their fat hanging off of them. 
Um, and I really have been loving shooting micro diameters lately. Man, the penetration is just ridiculous. Awesome. Well, thanks for taking the time. And I think people are going to really enjoy this episode. Um, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me on, man. It's been a blast.